Good evening. First, I'd like to acknowledge and really appreciate all your efforts on this retreat thus far. This is not an easy thing to do at all. And even after 17 years of practicing, it isn't an easy thing to do at times. Up until this retreat, you know, I managed a day-long Tara last weekend for about 250 people, and then I was the pre-retreat manager for this, and then getting ready to, you know, teach, etc. Every sit that I've had since Friday morning, I've cried. And it's that powerful thing about what happens when I can just really allow myself to stop and to really allow myself to feel into what's really happening in here. And there's a lot of um, tender-heartedness that's arising in this life form right now. In that tender-heartedness, I also noticed that my mind was pretty peaceful and that my body felt really calm up until now. I was sitting here waiting for you all to come in. I recollected this uh, kindergarten report card that I got that basically said, um, Marinella needs improvement in show and tell. (laughs) And it's been a practice ever since (laughs) to prove that teacher wrong. As I shared in my last small group, I don't really like doing this. Like, it's so much easier for me to be in the back and manage a retreat and take care of all the behind the scenes kinds of things. And I'm just really grateful to Tara for seeing, you know, whatever my potential was in terms of being a teacher. And I've found throughout my life that it's always been being for, you know, sort of the universe has given me all these opportunities to be in the front of the room. And, um, you know, I was elected to give, you know, the college graduation speech. And, you know, it wasn't like I was the smartest kid in the class or anything. I think my classmates just wanted to see me in a dress on stage <laughs> at graduation. So they got their wish, and it was actually the uh, first all-nighter I ever pulled in college. And it was kind of a foreshadowing in a way, because I often um, have difficulties like writing a Dharma talk. Like it, it's, I'm so organized in so many different ways in my life, and I'm very linear in a lot of different ways. But when it comes to the Dharma, it's just so not like that. And um, it's been this real practice of just sitting in uncertainty, sitting in security, sitting in doubt, and feeling what that feels like. And so this afternoon, you know... Um, Tara and Luisa and Janet were checking in. It's like, well, how's your talk going? It's like, I have no idea. (laughs) I haven't really done anything yet. And I go back to my room, and my left brain is like, you better write something, you know? It's like, put it down on paper, you know, because you're going to get up there, and you're going to freak out. And um, So there's something written, and then... um, what I notice about myself is that when I rely on notes a lot, I don't feel at all connected to you. And that's kind of why I move the uh, lectern a little bit over to the side, because I just kind of feel like I need to feel you. So 
So a title that ran through my head this morning about um, sort of an organizing title for this uh, talk tonight was uh, You Can't Always Get What You Want. And you know how that goes, right? And um, so much of my life has been that way from the moment I was born. And it's so interesting how um, one of the first things, you know, one of the first ways we're identified when we're born is we're sexed. You know, you're either male or female. And um, what I've come to find and what I find really beautiful about, you know, these times that we're living in right now is that um, younger and younger kids are realizing that that's not necessarily true for them. And there's, there was this uh, interview with Tina Fey when she was pregnant a few years ago, and the interviewer asked, you know, do you know the gender of your baby? And Tina Fey said, I won't know until they go to their high school prom. <laughs> <laughs> I want her for my mom. <laughs> so in the groups and in, in listening uh, to folks within the groups, Many people are sitting in a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty about what the future holds, a lot of uncertainty about who we are and what we're supposed to be doing in the world. So I want to share this poem, uh, this quote by Thomas Merton. You do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it's all going. What you need is to recognize the possibilities and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage faith, and hope. So it's kind of what Pema Chodron calls like leaning into the sharp edges. You know. So I, I love that Tara shared so vulnerably and beautifully about her life you know, and her uh, journey on this path and just kind of want to share a little bit of mine with you tonight too. So my parents came to the United States when I was 10 months old, immigrated from the Philippines, and we had the good fortune of living in Hawaii for the first six years of my life. And it was a nice transition because people in Hawaii kind of looked a lot like us, you know, because it's mostly an Asian uh, population and the Hawaiian population there as well. But very early on, um, I really got that uh, it wasn't okay to be who we were. You know, my parents refused to teach us the language. They thought, you know, if we were taught the language, we would be accented and we would be ridiculed, made fun of. And so, so much of how they brought us up was to protect us from harm in that way. When I was five years old, I, I started realizing, like, wow, I actually like little girls. I found myself attracted to little girls, and I also was not at all wanting to be a little girl. I didn't see myself in that way. I remember, um, you know, playing with trucks and guns and, and, like, sharpening popsicle sticks and stabbing little girls with them. And, you know, it's not very, like, little girl behavior. <laughs> I didn't want to wear dresses and, you know, wear, wear jeans. And, like, one Christmas, um, Santa Claus brought me a dress. And I took it to my mom and I said, you know, Santa doesn't sew. I want the big wheel, you know. <laughs> 
And so like all these things, and I really also picked up that like it wasn't okay for me to be the way I was. You know, what I saw and what was modeled for me, you know, in the mid-60s, early 70s, was, you know, there were these social norms, you know, and boys liked girls, you know, men liked women, etc. And um, when I was in Hawaii, my mom said I couldn't take karate because I had to take hula because that's what girls did, and I didn't want to take hula. There was just like all these ways that I was just like, this is just not me, this is just not me. There's something wrong with me. Something very wrong with me. And so what I got, you know, as a young child was like, so there's something really wrong with you. There's something really defective in, about you. And so you have to figure out a way to survive and, and get liked and loved and accepted in this world. And so the way that I found that for myself was trying to be like the best kid possible. You know, like get good grades, be a great athlete, you know, behave, you know, just don't rock the boat. You know, just be who other people want you to be. And that, you know, um, assimilation and that, you know, um, conforming in these different ways just really, like, affected my psyche so deeply that I had, like, no idea who I was. Because the I that I knew and knew that I had to keep a secret uh, was just not okay. So... um, you know, growing up, you know, I would see, like, you know, my girlfriends, and they would, you know, be wanting to date guys and this, that, and the other, and I was just not there at all, you know. I would, I remember, like, when we have slumber parties, I would want to play spin the bottle, and they were like, what, are you crazy? You know? <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with that, you know? Um, and so just all these different ways where I just, like, wow, I'm just not, I'm just not there. And I remember like being asked to the, you know, senior prom and uh, I come down in my prom dress and my father immediately says, uh, you walk like John Wayne. <laughs> I just wanted to say to him, I feel like John Wayne. <laughs> and, um, and it was really interesting because the, the guy who asked me to my prom actually ended up being gay as well. <laughs> And uh, 10 years after we graduated from high school, it was around like 1987, and there was this big gay and lesbian march on Washington. And I worked at Lambda Rising, this gay bookstore in DC, and one, you know, all the crowds of people that came through, right in front of me stood Mike, the guy I went to my prom with. I'm like, Mike, it's so good to see you, you know? And he ran out of the store. And I was like, why did you, you know, and so we went to our, you know, high school reunion a couple of years later, and I said, why did you run out of the store? We were in a gay bookstore, <laughs> you know. And he said, well, I just came out, and I was scared. And um, I could totally understand that, especially at that time. And so all these different ways, I just tried to, like, be something I wasn't. I remember in college, I would hang up pictures of, Richard Gere and Rob Lowe and like, you know, pretending that I was really into these guys when I actually really wanted to be these guys. And um, being in college and 
10 years later at our 10 year reunion, I said to my co college friends who I'd already come out to, so when did you figure out that I was gay? And they were like, as soon as you walked in the door. <laughs> you know? It's like all these ways I felt like I was trying to protect myself or hide from myself. And even when I came out to my parents, you know, I came out to the world when I was 21. I came out to my parents when I was 38. And the reason being is that um, my parents are very conservative, Republican, Catholic, Bush-loving, Fox News-watching folks. And it didn't feel um, like a conversation we could really have <laughs> at the time. And I remember um, coming out to them. I called up my mom and I said, you know, Mom, I have something really important I want to tell you. And she said, okay, why don't you come home, we'll have lunch, da-da-da-da. So come home, have lunch. And I said, um, can we turn Bonanza off? You know, <laughs> we always had like the TV, you know, on in the background. And they thought that was sort of something really serious, like I'm going to tell them I'm going to die or something like that. And so he turned Bonanza off and I said, you know, um, I've been wanting to tell you this for a really long time and I was really afraid to. And, and I want to just let you know that I'm gay. And without skipping a beat, my mom said, we've been waiting 18 years for you to say something. And for me, hearing that was like, wow, I just lost 18 years of a relationship with my parents, pretending I was something that I wasn't. And that became the impetus for me to really begin like getting like everybody else accepts you but yourself. You know? I'd been in serial monogamous relationships for 18 years, and I would have these six-month, one-year, two-year relationships with people. I got that, you know, I didn't want them to really know who I was because if they did, they wouldn't want to be with me. And so I just end it, you know? And it's like, okay, the novelty is over, moving on, moving on, moving on. But then I would be sad that I couldn't really maintain a relationship. And so then I decided, well, the common denominator in all these failed relationships is me. And so how, what do I need to do, you know, uh, to shift this and change this? So it was a really terrible breakup that actually brought me to the Dharma. And um, a dear, dear friend of mine said, you know, I'm going to this class in Bethesda, you know, on Wednesday nights, and there's a woman, Tara Brock, there that I think you'd really like. So I was like, okay, you know, what the hell, let me go check it out. And I did. And it just seemed like, and many of you probably have this feeling too, that every time Tara gives a Dharma talk, you feel like she knows what exactly you're thinking and what you need to hear. You know? And that happened for seven years every week that I would attend. And in that, I decided, you know, that it was really important to bring the focus back on myself and anything outside of myself um, that I claimed wasn't making me happy, I tended to blame on this external force or this external, this other person or this situation. It was making me feel some way. And it wasn't about how I'm relating to what's happening around me or who I was interacting with. So I decided, you know, in the very early years of my spiritual practice that, you know, maybe I just need to be celibate for like a little while and just focus on um, 
you know, myself and my life. And so uh, the distraction that I picked was to bike ride 450 miles from like Montreal, Canada to Portland, Maine on this uh, charity bike ride. And during that period of just focusing on myself and taking better care of myself, it got to the point where, you know what? I'm actually in love with everybody. And if I was in a relationship, great. And if I wasn't in a relationship, great. And then I just felt like, wow, I think I got it, you know, that there wasn't this reliance on someone loving me or accepting me that made it okay for me to be me. And so fast forward, um, not really fast forward too much, maybe like three months later, because I wasn't interested in anyone, I was just looking through the personal ads in the gay paper. And... (laughs) Because it was in the paper, you know, at the time, and it's just always so fascinating how people put themselves out there. And I was going through, and I saw this ad, and um, and it was totally like my mo, you know, it was someone who uh, had never, you know, was turning 30 and had never had an experience, you know, with a woman before, and wanted to check it out. So I'm like, okay, you know. And right before that, I thought, you know, maybe I'll just give up on relationships altogether and just join a monastery, you know, because, like, then I don't have to think about it, you know, sexuality or any of that kind of stuff. And so I thought, oh, one more fling before the monastery, you know, I just got to get on, the yaya's out, and, you know, it's like... And so, um, so I met this, you know, woman, and as soon as I saw her, I recognized her from somewhere. And I was like, you know, do I know you? She's like, I don't think so. And we got to talking and, it, and found out that we both meditated. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And she asked me where I meditated. And I said, oh, I meditate with Tara Brock and Bethesda. And she's like, you know, I don't belong to that sangha. But um, I did go on a New Year's retreat with them about a year and a half ago. And I said, um, oh, you know, I was on that same retreat. And in my mind, I'm like, she was my Vipassana romance on that retreat. And if you guys don't know what a Vipassana romance is, it's uh, when you're attracted to somebody on retreat and you have a crush on them, you date them, you marry them, and divorce them all in the same retreat. (laughs) And so um, I kept that to myself. You know, I didn't want to say, oh, I had a big crush on you. So I just thought, just be cool, you know, check her out, just make sure she's not a little, "Mm," you know, kind of thing. So we had a wonderful like evening together, and at the end of the evening, um, she said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, to be quite honest with you, I actually had a crush on you on that retreat. And so Wendy and I have been together uh, 13 and a half years since then. So. And we got married five years ago by Tara, and, um, and legally married in D.C., and now we're legally married in all 50 states. So. <laughs> And what was interesting is like two years into my relationship with Wendy, I was like, oh, okay, it's about time to go again, you know, and move on. And, and um, by a huge surprise, like she proposed to me. And I was so nervous and, that, and like freaked out that she asked me to marry her that I said, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that doesn't quite sound right yet, you know. Um, and so I did, and um, and then I freaked out because you know when you say I you know 
I do, or I yes in that way. Um, for me, it was like, I can't escape anymore. I actually have to face into myself and do the work that I've been avoiding for a really long time. And so for me, the gift of having Wendy, you know, in my life, someone who's been so incredibly loving and compassionate and patient with me and me coming to terms with this female body that I was incarnated into, um, it's tremendous. And because I never imagined anyone wanting to, to stay with that. So it really showed me that, um, you know, from the outside that I was worthy of love, that I, w I was attractive and that I was able to, like, you know, have someone who actually want to spend the rest of their life with me. And so this other way that I began to cope, you know, with this defect that still lives inside, um, was to be perfectionistic, you know, like I'm a Leo born in the year of the dragon with a one Enneagram, you know, and so like needing things to be a certain way and looking good and all that kind of stuff is really, um, it's really out there. And I, I noticed too that my need for perfection um, became projected onto other people and, you know, be it my partners or my friends. Like, I couldn't tolerate chaos or change or anything that I couldn't feel like I had some control over. And just got to the point where that was actually running my life. You know? And what I found through this practice is that, um, there's a beautiful quote that says something like, you know, meditation isn't about getting, you know, controlling your thoughts. It's about not having your thoughts control you. And so to really get that, being able to sit in discomfort, to be able to see these patterns that I use to survive, you know, to manage my life, to like get through the day, to get through my life, um, that they weren't working anymore, you know. And so many people in uh, the group meetings, you know, I would hear these stories of like, yeah, I mean, I'm stuck kind of in this pattern, but I don't know how to get myself out. And so it becomes this real test, in a way, of, for me, um, this willingness to, like, sit in the unknown, to not know. Um, when I was around 40, I'd been a bodywork practitioner for about 13 years, and I, I loved my work, but I knew that I couldn't do it forever. And um, well, I was clear that I didn't want to go back to school at 40, and... Uh, Wendy was going through acupuncture school at that time, and I saw how crazy and busy she was studying and all that. That's like, wow, that doesn't look like any fun. <laughs> um, and what came clear to me was like, I just want to serve. And I just put that out into the universe and just said, I just want to serve. I have no idea what that looks like, but that's what I need to do. And that's when these opportunities within IMCW came around um, re managing retreats and uh, it used this other part of my brain that just really loves logistics and marketing and, and putting stuff out there and making stuff happen and holding space. 
Uh, and, it, and there was another opportunity where about um, nine, ten years ago, IMCW started really exploring, you know, the big question of like, why are we so white? You know, why are we so dominant culture in our in our sangha? And I was part of a diversity committee along with Luisa back then. And from those um, conversations, uh, a people of color and LGBTQ sangha arose. And these two folks, a woman of color and um, a lesbian woman, you know, wanted to lead them, but they had no idea how to organize. And so I thought, well, I can organize and, you know, you guys can lead the group or whatever, because I don't like doing the leading thing. And uh, so they decided, you know, um, were with me for a little while and then they both left. And then I had both these sanghas to myself. And um, they've been going now for like nine years and I can remember, you know, the first few meetings that we would have, I'd basically find some Dharma article from Tricycle and just say, please pass this along and read it and then discuss it. And I'll just ring the bell when it's time to, <laughs> when it's time to end. Um, and then I got, you know, some support from IMCW to keep these sanghas going and, and with that support I felt this uh, responsibility, a responsibility to step up. And as uncomfortable as it felt, what I've really gotten in my life right now is like the more, something, uh, the more uncomfortable something is, the more I actually need to do it. You know? And so I started you know, stepping up a little bit, started giving little like 10 minute, 15 minute, 20 minute Dharma talks. You know, I've done this uh, women's retreat with Tara now for about five years, and this is actually the first time I've ever done a Dharma talk out on the retreat. Um, and I knew Louisa would probably give a, a, a so much better one than me, but I was just like, it freaks me out, so I'm going to do it. And let's just see what happens. So you're seeing what's happening. Uh, <laughs> wishing Louisa were here. Um, you know, and, and that's where, to me, this lesson, this insight of um, sitting in this comfort is like where I grow. You know, it's where I can actually like lean into these sharp places, where I can actually move into this place of like, um, you know, maybe I can do this. Maybe it's possible. And after I, you know, um, I assisted on my first women's retreat about five years ago, this woman came up to me and said, La, I really, I really like the way you teach. I think you'd be great with kids. You know, how do you have any experience working with teenagers? And I said, I have absolutely no experience working with teenagers and I'm actually quite afraid of them. <laughs> so again, it's like, now you got to do it. <laughs> it's freaking you out. And I did. And, um, and so, but I went for one weekend to like a... Uh, weekend retreat with these teens and the first test was like this retreat center was like five hours away in southwestern Virginia and I get this call two days before it's like la we need like you to drive three 15 year old boys five hours down to southwestern Virginia I'm like no <laughs> and I um, picked them up really early so that they would still be sleepy so they slept for like a good three hours of the ride 
until we like, you know, hit the Kentucky Fried Chicken and they ate and so they were quiet. And then after lunch they put their earphones on and I was like, yes, we're going to survive this, this ride. And so, um, so I get to the um, retreat and all these kids are, you know, coming together and some of them know each other, some of them don't, but they're all interacting. And I was not at all the kind of kid who socialized very well, you know, like necessarily fit in very well. I was very introverted and shy. And all of a sudden my inner teenager just like came up. I don't belong here. I, um, I have nothing in common with these people. They're too cool for me. All, you know, that stuff felt super lonely and um, we had these small groups the following day and the facilitator asked um, you know just go around in a circle and just share your name and how you're feeling right now so it came my turn and I said you know my name is Law and um, I'm feeling really uh, lonely and isolated and uh, not cool enough for you 15 year old girl across the way from me said what are you talking about like you're the coolest and the 15-year-old boy next to her said, yeah, you shouldn't talk to yourself that way. And my inner 15-year-old was like, they like me. <laughs> yeah. And they've been, these teenagers have been like the most healing beings. You know? And it's kind of like these ways that like, we're afraid of certain people, you know, whether it be like, their age or like how they act or you know what they do or the color of their skin or their orient- whatever biases we have and uh, you know unless like I you know took the plunge to like kind of explore that I never would have um, known you know what a gift that these young people would be to me you know when I came out to them as um, gender queer you know the first thing they said to me was like what pronouns do you use I'm like, how do you even know to say that? Like, nobody, <laughs> nobody asks me that, you know? And, um, and they get really mad when adults don't get it right, you know? Um, and so just being able to witness, you know, these teens, and I remember, um, because I wasn't this kind of teen at all, you know, where, and some of you who are parents, like, know teenagers where, like, everything is superlative, like, there's, like, everything is so big, the emotions are so big, and expressions are so big, and I would listen to these young people talk about their experience, and I'm like, really? You believe that? You know, and it was just kind of like, they do. They can't help but, you know, and it just, um, it, they almost, like, I was living through them vicariously what I couldn't allow myself to feel at that time. You know, just these different ways of showing up, you know, unexpectedly, you know, it's kind of like, the title, you know, you, I can't, you can't always get what you want. It's like, well, what I wanted was like an easy life where everybody would just love me and it would all be okay, you know. But no, it's like all these different ways where I'm going to bump up and rub up against things that don't feel so good. Um, I'm aware and feeling self-conscious of the fact that I'm kind of like all over the place and I'm okay with that, so... Um, I hope you are. (laughs) Um, That's what it's like to not read off a script. So going back to, you know, my experience with IMCW, you know, being assimilated 
um, as a young child, you know, to really follow white culture and, and my parents telling me, it's like, you know, follow the white people, they'll show you the way, you know, don't mess with anybody else because um, that's where the power is, that's where the money is, etc. So I felt very comfortable in very white, you know, uh, environments, spaces. I remember walking into River Road uh, for Tara's talk the first night and other than the Buddha sitting next to her, I was the only other person of color in the room. And, and I was fine with that, you know, I liked being, it was like kind of, I was special, you know, it's kind of like that, taking that tokenism in a feeling token, but like, it's okay, people are actually like paying attention to me, etc. But then when I started, you know, the affinity sanghas, the LGBTQ and people of color sanghas, you know, some of the feedback that I would get would be like, why are you separating yourselves out? It's not necessary, you know, we're all one, and, uh, you know, we're, we're welcoming. And when I allowed myself to actually be in these spaces and, and holding these spaces or going to my first people of color retreat, it's like, it's different, you know, it's different. Things that get shared and what gets uh, raised as issues or concerns um, had never been raised in, you know, dominant culture uh, retreats for me. And, uh, and I remember, you know, it was like, wow, maybe this is why I didn't really want to claim this identity of being a person of color, because it actually hurts a lot to not be seen um, in that way. And I remember, like, for, and Tara knows this well for me, I, I had this, like, really difficult, it was almost like I was a teenager again in the way that I, you know, wasn't, but it was teenage energy around, like, every time I would see a white person, I would just get really angry, you know? It was kind of like all this, like, unprocessed stuff. And I could remember, like, going into conversations or being in dominant culture spaces and, and like, basically saying, like, I know you're going to say something stupid. You know, I know that you're going to hurt me in some sort of way. And once I got this like visceral body sensation of like this was how I was moving through the world, it was so um, not how I wanted to be. It was not for me dharmic, you know. It wasn't um, being open-hearted and compassionate and loving and accepting. And for me, as a, I could check off all kinds of boxes in terms of diversity, and. I could be really defensive about that, but it was actually like creating more of that sense of separation. And I was participating in that. And so I didn't want to do that, you know, anymore. And it's, so it's been this incredible practice of patience and tolerance and acceptance and um, compassion, really. I would say to myself, you know, La, it took you like, 40-something years to get that you're a person of color. Give these white people a break, you know? And there was this video that I uh, saw on Facebook. I don't know if anybody, any of you saw it, but it's about the backwards bike. Anybody know that video? It's a beautiful example. Um, this engineer had this friend who was a welder, and the welder built this bike, and he said, I bet you can't ride this bike. And the engineer was like, well, you know, I can ride a bike. And so what the welder did was he made the bike so that the handlebars, when you turned it this way, the wheel went that way. And so it was very, it was opposite, you know, of what we're conditioned, you know, when we learn how to ride a bike, to ride it. So the engineer got on the bike, he could not ride the bike. He could not ride the bike. And he's like, I am determined to learn how to ride this bike. 
You know how long it took him to like learn how to ride this bike? Practicing five minutes a day for eight months. And he finally got it. His six-year-old son, you know, had a backwards bike made for him. He got it in two weeks, you know, which shows like the plasticity of a young mind versus an older one. And so what it really, for me, was an example of was how long and how much concerted effort it takes to undo something that is so deeply conditioned in us. You know, with the uprisings, you know, that have been happening and, you know, all these um, stories, you know, that are in our world right now, in our country in particular right now, you know, there's so much that people want to do to, like, work on this. And I sit back and I think, it's going to take a really long time. It's great to, like, you know, bring that awareness and stuff, but I think it's also really important that it's going to take a long time. And what I love and why, I, you know, just continuing, you know, to stay and, and be engaged, you know, within IMCW around this, it's like, you know, we're a mindfulness community and it's still taking us a really long time. It's like, you know, we have another world out there. You know, to me, a diversity training would be, let's all just take like a field trip in Walmart and just stand there and look around while we sit in a McDonald's and just like, um, you don't have to eat the food, but just like, you know, just like look around. Like how many of us actually hang out in those kinds of places? You know, how many of us actually get a taste of what that experience might be like? So there are lots of ways, you know, that um, life can show us what we need to learn, only if, only if we trust it. And so like all these different things that are happening in the world that are horrific and tragic and painful, to me they're all wake-up bells. They're all wake-up bells. And we live in a world where, like, what kind of wake-up bell do we actually need? What kind of cosmic two-by-four do we need to be hit up against the head with? We've already had 9-11. You know, how much has changed and what happened, you know, as a result of that? Um, I was on a month-long uh, retreat in Spirit Rock in March, and I'd never been on a, um, a long retreat like that before, and it was one of the most uh, powerful experiences that I've had in, in practice. And three weeks into the retreat, I get this knock on my door. And you never really want a knock on the door when you're on retreat, because it usually means something big. So go to the retreat manager's office, and she said, you know, your partner called, it's about your mom. And so I went and uh, called my partner, and Wendy said that, you know, my mom was uh, taken to the hospital, she has a malignant and incurable brain tumor. And so I had to decide, you know, do I go home or do I, like, you know, ride out the retreat? And I decided I would go home. And it was really hard, you know, to go home after having spent three weeks there and um, falling in love with this, these hundred other yogis and the teachers and the managers. And um, on the last night I was there, I walked up this hill that went to this bench that overlooked the retreat center just for the last time to say goodbye. And as I was walking up the hill, this voice came to my head that basically said, in this life you will experience pain, but you no longer have to suffer. 
And I was like, wow, you know, that was worth the price of admission. And I took that home with me, you know, on the plane, and I just thought, you know, I know what the dynamic is, you know, I, I could project what the dynamic is going to be with my family. My sister is going to, like, over, you know, um, work. My dad is going to, like, exhaust himself by trying to take care of mom. There's going to be all this kind of thing going on. And so it was like, how do I want to enter that space? Like, do I want to, you know, fall into that dynamic with them? And I decided, you know, I don't even want to think about it. I'm just going to show up and see what's going on. And I noticed that this role that I've been playing with my family has been of just like holding space, you know, and how powerful that is to not have to fix anything or change anything, but just to be like really present with whoever, um, you know, is going through something or... And it's been interesting because I never had like a very close relationship with my mother. Um, I always experienced her as very emotionally distant and not very nurturing. And um, she always told me, what she, I think she was the original tiger mom, actually. And uh, it was just hard you know, to connect with her. We didn't really have very much in common. But I knew she loved me. And so what has happened, you know, since uh, this diagnosis of the brain tumor is that, and she only has like four to six months to live, is that she's softened quite a bit. And in that softening, I've been able to find an entree into like really saying and being the way I really wanted to say and be with her. One night at the hospital, she was walking down and she, uh, in her walker, and I just come off a retreat, and so I said, you know, Mom, when I'm on retreat, we actually, like, walk this slowly. And she turned to me and said, um, will you teach me how to meditate? And I was like, what'd you do with my mother? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I took her back to her bed and, you know, had her lie down and just did a simple, like, breath meditation and uh, body scan with her. And she was totally in the zone within, like, two minutes. And after about 10 minutes, she abruptly opened her eyes and she said, Will you tape that for me? That was so peaceful. <laughs> I said, Sure, Mom. And, um, and I taught her some seated Qigong that we had learned on retreat. And, uh, and every night when I'm, I'm home with her, you know, she asked me to like, do the Qigong with her and, and meditate with her. And it was this moment of like, Wow, you know, my mom finally knows what I do. <laughs> for a living and I feel like you know as painful and sad as you know this diagnosis is and knowing that my mom has this little bit of time the urgency of healing the urgency of forgiveness the urgency of um, a deepening compassion is so there right now every time I leave my mother she asks me to pray for her and uh, I said, sure, Mom. And she said, um, I said, what exactly do you want me to pray for? And she said, you know, I want you to pray that God accepts me. And I was just like, wow. Okay. I said, well, do you accept yourself? Do you feel like you've, you know, done good in this world? I mean, you raised two awesome children. Um, and she said, I think so. And for me, that was enough, you know be it God or something outside of herself, to really trust that. 
And when I asked her what her last wishes were, she said, um, I want you to come back to the church, the Catholic church. I had to take a deep breath with that one. <laughs> and I said, um, you know, Mom, I really think it's great and really honor and respect that Catholicism has been your refuge to help you through difficult and challenging times. And I just want you to know that I still believe in God. I still pray to God. I light a candle at the National Shrine like every week for you, and I'll kneel in front of the Virgin Mary and, you know, pray that God accepts you. And I found another way that, um, that really works for me, and I'm really happy. And I want you to know that you don't have to worry about me. You know, she didn't say anything, and uh, so I just felt like, you know, it landed in whatever way. And then a few days later, she would ask me, uh, do you know how to pray the rosary? <laughs> and I was like, okay, so we're going to do this for a little while. And, um, but, you know, it's, it, like, it doesn't, like, give me that charge anymore, you know. All the differences and all the difficulties and all the, you know, ways I felt like, um, I didn't have the mom I, I really wanted or needed. Um, the bottom line is like, she gave me birth, you know, she brought me here. She gave me life, you know, and a life that's been pretty challenging that I've had to navigate in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, she and my father have a very embattled relationship and um, it's really like taught me how I don't want to be in a relationship, you know, so it's like these these ways of modeling that like, I had to figure out, like, okay, do I want to go down that road that they went down, or do I choose something different? And so it was like, it just totally made it okay, because I made the choice. I saw, you know, what was offered, and I, I did it differently. And so to get, you know, the real, like, primal connection, like, this is my mother, just opened my heart in a way that I didn't think was possible to have with her. And so her being diagnosed with this brain tumor was an incredible blessing in my relationship with her, to not have any sense of regret or a sense of, like, I, I wasn't able to say what I needed to say. You know, it would have been a totally different thing if she, like, just died of a heart attack, you know, all of a sudden. And then it's like, ah, all this stuff one of my biggest regrets was that my parents would die and I would never have, you know, told them that I, how I felt about them or how much I really appreciated them. Because I always thought, oh, there's time, you know. My, mo my father would always say, your mother's never going to die, she's too stubborn. And it's interesting, you know, my mom, you know, had radiation, so she's bald now. She looks like the most beautiful little Buddhist monk, and like nun, you know, um, that watches Fox News. And, <laughs> and I said to her, you know, one night, it's like, Mom, do you really want to spend the last six months of your life watching irrational people yell at each other? And she looked me in the eye and she said, Yes. <laughs> And I said, just checking. I just want to make sure all your needs were met. Um, so, you know, we may never see eye to eye on things, but um, 
it's so great to feel like there's still space for love. The Buddha once said, um, what you are now is what you have been. What you will be is what you are now. I'll say that again because it confused me the first time I heard it. What you are now is what you have been. What you will be is what you are now. So there's this moment where so much of our past can inform our future so how much of our present can inform our future as well. That it takes a willingness, a humility, a courage, a patience, a trust to basically what the Buddha prescribed, you know, said about this path. It's like going against the stream. This is not an easy path. It's, uh, it's quite challenging and difficult, but the fruits of it are tremendous. You know, and I'll totally admit, like I am not a practitioner who studies suttas or like you know really gets into like all that stuff. Um, I'm kind of the uh, Dalai Lama, you know. Kindness is my religion. The Dharma for me is almost that simple: kindness towards myself first allows me to be kind and gentle and compassionate toward the, towards others. Not all the time depends on the day, but, um, but just kind of knowing that, trusting that. What I love about this path is that um, it always points to the truth. You know, I often tell the teens, like, once you start becoming more mindful and aware, like, the jig is up. You can't get away with anything anymore because you know what you're doing. And there are times when you know what you're doing and you still choose, you know, maybe the less wholesome, unskillful way. Um, But then you can always begin again. To me, this whole practice, this whole journey, this whole path is so, um, there's always something that's going to catch you. The Dharma will always catch you. There's always something to practice. You know, if you're feeling aversion or, um, you know, you can always practice loving kindness. You know, when you're feeling greed, you can always practice generosity. When you're feeling um, a lack of abundance, you can always practice gratitude. One of my teens was um, wanting some practice outside of like the formal sitting and walking practice, and I said, "Okay, well, you know, text me uh, three things that you're grateful for each each night before you go to bed." And this kid is one of these diligent; like she would definitely do that every night. So about after a month and a half of of that practice, she's like, "Okay, I'm bored now. Like, give me another practice." And so the practice I gave her was to name one generous act that you did each day. 
and I could tell when she would be scraping the bottom of the barrel, you know, <laughs> with a generous act. And uh, so one night, my favorite one was, um, you know those 18-wheeler uh, trucks that have that, how's my driving? Well, I called. <laughs> and I told him he drove really well. And this is the same teen who um, would, was cutting herself a lot. And uh, we were at a New Year's retreat, and I asked her, you know, so what was the thing you wanted to let go of from, the pre, you know, from this last year? And she said, I want to let go of cutting myself. I said, that's great. You know, she threw that into the fire. And um, there was about a week or so where she wasn't sending her generosity things. And uh, I said, are you okay? You know, texting back and forth. And she's like, mm, I've been having a really difficult time, but I didn't want to tell you. And so uh, I decided I would call her up. And kids, uh, teens don't like you calling them up, you know, because they don't like to talk to you. They actually want to just keep texting you. And she's like, well, can't we just keep texting? I'm like, no, you actually need to know how to talk to someone on the phone. You know, I think that's a really good life skill to have. And so when I got her on the phone, um, she said, yeah, I've been really struggling a lot, and I actually cut myself again. And uh, she said, are you mad at me? And I said, no, I'm not mad at you. I'm actually really proud of you. She's like, why are you so proud of me? And I said, because you didn't cut for a month and a half. And she said, wow, you know. No adult has ever like said that to me before. So there's these ways of like which way do we choose to see something? You know, I would rather celebrate this kid not cutting herself for a month and a half than like having a hard week and doing it. So that's where the Dharma can keep catching us. It's where the practice of being able to see clearly enough that there are other options and ways to forgive that we wouldn't necessarily think about. So I'm just going to end with uh, this quote from Goethe about how powerful we are. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess, I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person is humanized or dehumanized. If we treat people as they are, we make them worse. If we treat them as they ought to be, we help them become what they are capable of becoming. This is how powerful we are. This is how powerful we can be when we can be aware of the thoughts and feelings and sensations that are happening in our body and make choices from the understanding of what that is that's actually happening. And alongside with that, having the compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience with ourselves, especially, to ride with that awareness that's arising. Sit for a moment, please.
So just want to thank you for your kind and generous attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.